Well, good morning. Good to be with you all. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Glad you are here. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome to you. If there's anything that we can do to help you get connected to the community here or to serve you, we really love, would love to be able to do that. So come find me or somebody you've seen up front or someone who looks like they know what's going on around here. We really would love to get to know you and get you plugged into the community here at River City. Uh, this morning, uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys again. Uh, last week, we started a brand new series where we're going to be this fall taking a look at the Ten Commandments. And, and what I tried to do last week is to, uh, to set up a bit of a framework for our study by highlighting a few kind of foundational truths, a few kind of big picture, important ideas that kind of set the stage or that need to set the stage if we're going to study these commands rightly, if we're going to understand what they're really about and, and what it looks like, like to think rightly about them. And so uh, three things I think I tried to highlight last week. One is that the Ten Commandments, they are rooted in a new identity because identity is the thing that leads to doing. Identity is the thing that leads to doing. You see, the Ten Commandments, they don't begin with what or why or how. They begin with who. They begin with who. Uh, Chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 2, it says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, before God tells them to do anything, what he does is he reminds them about who he is and about who they are and about what it means to be his people and to follow him. You see, and this is the, the ground that they stand on. This is the ground that we all need to stand on if we're gonna think rightly about these commands. You see, identity is the thing that determines action. We saw last week, the Ten Commandments, they they aren't instructions about how to get out of Egypt. The Ten Commandments aren't instructions about how to get free or how to to become free, how to to overcome sin themselves. No, you see, they are a gracious guide that shows God's people what it looks like to live free. You see, they they show a freed people what it looks like to live in the freedom that God has procured, that he has bought, that he has rescued his people to live in. You see, and it's in the context of that renewed identity that God lays out the kind of life that he saved his people to. He's the people that he's making for the praise of his glory. We saw, secondly, that the Ten Commandments, they reveal the God who gives them. They're not just a list of rules. They're not just God's favorite rules or the ones that he was feeling on that day. No, instead, the Ten Commandments, they reveal what God is like. They're, they're not a list of rules. Instead, they're a description of what it looks like, what it means to reflect God's character, to worship him by, by bearing his image and reflecting his nature in his character. And we saw last week that seeing God's commands as a reflection of him, as a revelation of his character, of his identity, that's the key to understanding them in the first First place, but it's also the key to understanding their ongoing role in our lives. And that leads to the, the last thing we saw is that the Ten Commandments, they, they're kind of like a spiritual MRI, right? The, they're an MRI machine. An MRI machine, it can show you what a healthy body looks like. It can show you what a sick body looks like. But an MRI machine, it cannot cure you. It cannot save you. It cannot rescue you. It can only diagnose you. You see, and that's, uh, that's a huge part of what's going on in the Ten Commandments. You see, they are set in, in a huge part of what their role is, is that they are meant to diagnose the condition of our hearts, you see. And the diagnosis that every one of us gets under the spiritual MRI of the Ten Commandments is that our hearts are sick. They are riddled with the disease of sin. You see, if we take the Ten Commandments, you look at that list, you see, we fail at all of them. There isn't a single one of the commandments that we can say, yes, we have obeyed these always. 
You see, but more than that, we actually often desire the opposite. We look at those Ten Commandments sometimes and we think, wow, these are just really restrictive. These are keeping me from freedom. These are keeping me from life. These are keeping me from the things that I want to do. And what that does is that actually reveals the, the, the depths of the depravity of our hearts because not only do we not live up to the Ten Commandments, the default mode of our heart is often an opposition to them. You see, and we said if we're ever going to be able to obey the Ten Commandments and live out our identity as God's, Im- as God's image-bearing representatives, then what we're going to need is new hearts altogether. You see, we talked last week about how the Bible talks about how our hearts are like stone. They're hard. And what we need is for God to give us new hearts, soft hearts. You see, and what we talked about last week is that the good news of the gospel is that God himself came to live in our place, to die in our place for us so that we would not only be able to obey him, but to, to have his heart so that we would not just want, to, that we would not just try to obey him, but we would long to do it. You see, it's the gospel that motivates and empowers us to obey God's commands. It's the gospel that motivates and empowers God's people to live in the freedom that God has saved them to live out. And so this morning, as we take a look at the very first of the commands, as we take a look at the command to have no other gods before God, what I want to show you this morning is that the freedom that God saves his people to live in, it hinges on this command. All of the rest of the commands, they hinge on the first one. And you can try to get all of the other ones, and unless you get the first one, you have no hope of the rest you see, and that, that's actually pretty counterintuitive to most people these days. You see, in fact, when, when you look at the research, uh, when you look at the surveys that have been done, what you see is when, when you ask people which of the Ten Commands they think are still important to live by, what you see is that the first four commands, which are all about God, are the ones that are overwhelmingly seen as the ones that are irrelevant in our world today. That's people who are Christians and non-Christians alike. That the, the first four commands are the ones that people think, you know, I don't think those ones really apply. Those seem, those seem pretty irrelevant. See, but the truth is, is that thinking, it stands at odds with what Jesus himself has to say. In Matthew 22, Jesus, he's referring to the first command and he says that it's not only the, that to love God, to worship him alone, that's not only the first commandment. Jesus sums it up by saying it is the first and the greatest commandment. He's saying, that, he's saying that loving God with everything you have, that, that worshiping him supremely and exclusively, that it's the cornerstone of obeying all of the other commands. Martin Luther, he famously echoed Jesus' words when he said this, if we keep this one, then we will keep all the others. You see, the reality is that the most important part of our faith, the most in, important aspect of our faith is not the sincerity of it. It's the object of our faith. The most important part of your faith is not how hard you believe, but in whom you believe. It's not how much you worship, it's who you worship. You see, it's possible to be full of sincere worship for the wrong thing, for the wrong God. And when our object of, the object of our worship is incorrect, when it's misaligned, you see, the rest of our lives will by nature be out of line. And so this morning as we study, what I hope to show you is that, is that God calls us this first command is the, is the, it's the linchpin. It's the hinge on which all of the, others, all of the others fall. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll read our passage as we think about the first and greatest commandment this morning. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and, and we just say we really need you. God, I really sense my need for you. My heart feels, I just feel distracted this morning. God, and I really need your spirit to empower me to teach rightly and with power. God, I can't do that without you. 
And so, God, I want to come before you and just say that I don't have what I need without you empowering me to do it. And so, God, would you fill me with your spirit to that end? And, God, would you also empower us, God, to hear and be able to respond? God, our hearts are hard without you making them soft. And so, God, I pray that you would be gracious to, to help convict our hearts, to help shape our hearts, to, to give us soft hearts that can actually be led by you. And so, God, we come wherever we're at this morning in need of you. And so we ask, God, that you would meet us in our need for you. God, we are grateful that you promised to do it. We love you, God. Thanks that you've loved us first. Help us as we study this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 this morning. And God spoke all of these words. Again, he's speaking here to the Israelite people. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. And you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of all those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So as we dive into our study of the Ten Commandments this morning, and actually every week what I want to do is I want to answer four questions together. I want to kind of let these four questions shape our time together as we study. And the first is this. First question we want to always answer is, what is God commanding? What is he instructing his people to think or believe or do? And furthermore, what does the New Testament have to show about how this, how this command is expanded? So we want to think about the instruction that this command offers. Secondly, we want to think about the revelation this command offers. You see, the commands we said last week, they, are, they reveal the God who gives them. And so they don't just show us what God wants, they show us what he's like. And so what what does the command reveal about God? And third, we want to ask the question, how how is this command meant to confront us? You see, the commands reveal something about God, but they also inherently reveal something about us. You see, in fact, they confront something about us, something in us that is naturally opposed to God and his nature and his character We want to ask the question, what is the spiritual MRI of this commandment? What is it diagnosing? What is it showing about the reality of our hearts? And lastly, we want to ask the question, how how do we respond? How does this command transform us? You see, what we saw in the first week and what we're going to keep seeing over and over, and what I need to, to reiterate and lay the groundwork for them is that the Ten Commandments, they can't save you. You see, obeying them is not something that can fix your status with God. It's not something that can make you right with him. You see, but the gospel can. You see, and so every week we need to ask the question, how does the gospel, how does the person and the work of Jesus, how does that enable us and motivate us and empower us to obey this command? How does the gospel, how is the gospel the thing that makes the obedience to these commands possible? And what does it look like for us as God's people to pursue an obedience to this? So, Every week we're going to think about instruction, we're going to think about revelation, confrontation, and transformation. So those are the four, those are the four questions, the four building blocks that will, that will shape each command about. And so the first question is this, instruction, what does this command instruct us to do? What does it teach us to do? The, this passage that we read this morning, it actually contains the first two commands. The first command is found in verse 3, which have no other gods before me. And then the second command that God says to, have, to make no other images of him. And so the, both of these commands, they have to do with the worship of God. The first command is about the internal worship of God. It's about what happens in your heart. 
And the second command is about the external worship of God. And you see, we'll spend the next couple of weeks talking about, well, next, spend the next two weeks talking about both of these commands. And I think it's really important that we see them, that we see them together because they really have a lot to do with one another. You see, the first command opposes worshiping the wrong God, and the second command opposes worshiping the right God in the wrong way. And so, as we shape our study, it's important to see these two things. Uh, So, this week we'll focus on number one with number two in the background, and then we'll flip next week as we see how they play on one, one another here. So, what is the command to have no other gods before me all about? What is God calling his people to here? And I think when we look at this command, it seems rather obvious to us. It seems rather clear. But simply put, what God is doing is he's calling his people to worship him supremely and exclusively. God is calling his people to worship him supremely and exclusively. And in order to understand that command, you need to understand what worship is. You see, see, every human is a worshiper. Every human is a worshiper. It is the thing that we were made by God to do. It is the one thing we are best at. In fact, it is the one thing that no human can ever stop doing. See, the question isn't if we will worship, it's what will we worship. The thing that we are always doing is worshiping. You see, whatever it is that holds the overwhelming, controlling influence in your heart, that's the thing you worship. Whatever it is that holds the overwhelming, controlling influence in your heart, that's the thing that you worship. That's your God. It's someone or something about which you say, without that, life isn't worth living. Without that, I don't have meaning or value or purpose. It's the thing that you would be crushed, just absolutely crushed if it was taken from you, or the thing that you would be furious if it was kept from you. You see, there will always be someone or something that our hearts worship. There there will always be one thing that we love supremely, the thing that is at the highest level, the thing that we love the most. You see, and God says, I want to be the one that you worship. I want to be the one thing that holds the overwhelming, controlling influence in your life. I want to be the one that you say, without you, life isn't worth living. if, if If you were taken from me, that I would be crushed. You see, he's saying it's going to be me or it's going to be something else. And what the Bible talks about over and over is that a consuming desire, a controlling desire for something other than Jesus, he says that's the definition of idolatry. That's the definition of idolatry. You see, the most offensive thing about the Ten Commands uh, to the Israelites is not that God was to be worshipped, but is that he was to be worshipped supremely and exclusively. That was the thing that was most offensive to the ancient world. God wasn't just saying that he was to be worshipped supremely, but he, he was to be worshipped exclusively. And when God says, when he says, you'll have no other gods before me, he's not just saying you'll have no other gods ahead of me, or you'll have no other gods kind of like just competing with me. No, he's saying, he's, he's saying you'll have no other gods in my presence. That there should be no one else on the table. It's me or nothing. You see, the point is that nothing else can qualify as God in our life. You see, the the true God will not only be number one, but he wants to be the only one. Jesus emphasized these words further in, in Luke chapter 14. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and their mother, their wife and their children, their brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying here that, that, that our love for him, it must make the strongest other loves in our life look like hate. 
You see, our love for him must be overwhelming. It must be the controlling influence of our life. You see, the God of the Bible will not be worshipped as one among many. He will not compete with anyone or anything. He will not play second fiddle. He will not be a side piece. He will be first and only, or he will be nothing. You see, and, and to the modern ear, that can seem offensive. It can seem offensive. It can seem narrow to us. It can, it can seem just, it can, it can seem constricting. See, but the reality is that some relationships are meant to be exclusive. Some relationships are meant to be exclusive. Imagine if, if I were to tell my wife, Hannah, hey, I love you. No matter how many other wives I take, you'll be the first. I really, you'll always be the first, right? That's not going well, right? right? That's not going to get like a, oh, I love you too, right? That's going to get a smack upside the head, right? And no one here is going to think negatively of her for doing that. In fact, if she doesn't do that, you're going to be like, what is wrong with her, right? You see, some relationships are meant to be exclusive. You see, one pastor noted, love demands exclusivity. You see, my wife doesn't want to be number one. She wants to be the only one, not because she doesn't love me, but because she does. Kevin DeYoung, in his his book on the Ten Commandments, he writes this. He says, marriage is a love relationship that demands forsaking all others. And so it is with God. Love is at the very heart of the first commandment, and if we truly love God, then we will love no one else and nothing else like we love him. You see, we love and worship him above all others because he alone is God. You see, and that brings us to the answer to our second question. We see what the passage instructs us to, but what does it reveal about the God who gives it? You see, and the thing that is most clear and center stage in our passage this morning is that God is the only one who is worthy of our worship. He is the only one worthy of being at the center of our lives. He is the only one worth being the thing that has the controlling, overwhelming influence in our hearts. The passage begins by by God reminding his people that he is their covenant-keeping God. He uses his covenant name, Yahweh. Whenever you read in your Bible, the L-O-R-D, Lord, in all caps, that's God using his, his personal covenant name with his people. You see, and what God has done is he's reminding them that he is their covenant-keeping God, that he is a God not just above them, but in relationship with them. And God has, in his relationship with them, he has saved them, he has rescued them, he has, he has pursued them and, and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He led them into freedom. As one commentator writes, he says, the first commandment is predicated on what the Lord did for the Israelites in Egypt. He saved them. He rescued them. He delivered them. He has a claim over them. And when God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, he's saying to them, why would you trust anyone else? Why would you long for anyone else? Why would you run after anyone else? Why would you give yourself to anyone else? I'm the one who has rescued you. For 400 years, you were stuck in sin and slavery, and I am the mighty Savior who has come to bring you out of it. And it's nothing that you have done. It's all that I have done. You see, God is the only one that's worthy of our worship. He's the only one who has all authority and all power. He's the only one who has created. He is the only one who has made. He is the one and only one worthy of being at the center of everything. You see, in the command, it doesn't just reveal that God is worthy of our worship. Verse 5, it tells us that he is jealous for our worship. 
Isaiah 42, verse 8, the Lord says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or share my praise with idols. You see, God is not just worthy of honor. He is jealous for it. Think of it like this. You see, the more faithful and pure a husband or wife is, the more jealous they are, the, the more their jealousy is aroused when there is an unfaithfulness in their spouse. You see, in God, he is supremely pure. He is overwhelmingly righteous. And so he cannot bear to share his glory, his worship, his praise with anyone or anything else. And he is right to do so. Because there is none like him. You see, worship is about loving something supremely. And so when we worship something other than God, what we're doing is giving the love that is due him to someone else. You see, and God says, I won't have it. I want all or nothing. My wife says the same. I will have all or nothing. And like my wife is right to say that, so is God. You see, love is exclusive. It's meant to be exclusive. And so it is with God. You see, and that leads us to the, how this command confronts our hearts. You see, like I said, we're all worshipers. It's the one thing that we cannot stop doing. And the fact that this is the very first commandment, the fact that the one at the beginning, the thing at the top of the list, is about who or what we worship should wake us up to the reality that the default nature of our heart, the default mode of our heart, the default direction of our heart is not to worship God. See, the first commandment is the first because it's the thing we wrestle with the most. You see, the default mode of our heart is that we would worship something else. We are prone to have someone or something other than God become the overwhelming, controlling influence in our lives. We are prone to have something else be our God. You see, and God doesn't say, don't have any idols before me because they're because there are actually other gods that he's competing with. He says, he says that because what happens is we turn other things into gods. Luther, Martin Luther, he famously describes our hearts as idol factories. And idolatry isn't just bowing down to some wooden statue. It's not just some problem that some primitive people had a long time ago. See, idolatry, like I said before, it's about making someone or something else the overwhelming, controlling influence in our hearts and our lives. It's about worshiping things that aren't God as God. Having someone or something other than the one true God, be the overwhelming, controlling influence in our life. You see, and for all of us, there are things we are tempted to worship other than God. For, for some of us, it can be people, whether that's family or parents or kids or, or spouses or, or spouses you don't have yet but want or kids you desperately long for but don't have. It can be things like money or jobs or houses or careers or hobbies. It can be things like social status or acceptance or, or political gain. You see, the list is endless. You see, but the reality is that none of those things are the real problem. None of those things are the real problem. They're just the thing on the surface. Last night, we were watching uh, How to Train Your Dragon with our kids. And there's a section in this movie where, where the dad, he's going to kind of go defeat all the dragons and find the lair. And, and when he, they get to this island and they break this thing open and, and all these dragons, they fly out and they kind of run away and, and they think, we've done it. Like we've, we've, we've defeated the dragons. This is so great. But what they don't realize is that there is like a dragon the size of the mountain that comes out and just starts smashing everything, right? You see, 
You see, the, we need to see the thing that's at the heart of the problem. You see, the, the things like money or jobs or careers, the things like our family or our kids, the things that, that can hold the overwhelming, controlling influence in our life, that's just the stuff on the surface. We need to find the dragon underneath, the real one that controls the rest of it. If you've been around River City for any significant amount of time, you've probably heard us talking about source idols. Now, this isn't something we made up. It's something that we've probably stolen from Tim Keller, like a bunch of other stuff, because that guy's just a straight-up genius. But um, source idols, they are the heart-level desires underneath all of the other stuff that I mentioned. Source idols are the heart-level desires underneath all the other stuff. And what we talk about is in the concept of four categories, power, control, comfort, and approval. The four source idols are power, control, comfort, and approval. You see, it's the worship of these things that causes us to break all of the other commandments. You see, take, just even take one, the fact that, that the command is to, to not lie or to, or to tell the truth, you see. And the truth is that we lie because we, sometimes we do it because we need the approval of others. What we need more than anything else is the acceptance of others, for some people to like us or to, to accept us, to think highly of us. You see, that's what it means to have an approval idol. Some of us, we lie because we need to have control of the situation. We need to be the ones in charge of how we are perceived. We need to be the ones that have the authority to decide how things will go and the way that they will be. You see, and that's what's at the root of a control idol. Some of us, we lie because we want to have power over others. We want to have influence over others. We want to be the ones with the, with the final say. We want our opinion and our, and our values to be the thing that is always brought to bear. You see, that's at the root of a power idol. Some of us, we lie because we're just trying to escape discomfort. We're just trying to escape awkwardness, or we're trying to escape responsibility, or we're trying to escape hardship or pain. You see, and at the root of that is that the fact that we worship comfort instead of God. You see, the truth is, is that there is something underneath all the stuff on the surface and you can, the same two people can worship the same surface idol, but have something altogether different underneath. Take money for an example, right? Some people, money might be the thing on the surface, but for people whose source idol is power, money controls them because they have at the heart level a longing to have power over others. You see, and if they have more money than other people, then they'll have more influence. And if they have more influence, they'll have more power. You see, they are ever increasingly willing to do whatever it takes to be able to have that influence. For others, the, the, the endless pursuit of money, the, the thing that causes that to be at the center of their world, right, is, is, is that it's really all about control. See, they don't ever want to have to depend on anyone or anything else. The cardinal sin in their life, the thing they could not bear is if they had to rely on someone else, if they didn't know where their next meal was coming from, if they didn't know the exact plan that was exactly happening. And so they do everything so that they can, so that they can have or get or keep money so that they don't have to rely on anyone or anything else. For others, still money controls them because in it they find comfort. You see, ultimately they worship what they worship in the pursuit of money is the pursuit of freedom. It's freedom from stress, freedom from responsibility, freedom, freedom from pain, freedom from sacrifice. They want the easy life. They want the pleasures of this world and they want to be distracted. And so they insulate themselves with money. For others, what's underneath their endless pursuit of money is simply the approval of others. The thing that money gets them is acceptance. The thing that it gets them is the approval of their family. Ah, yeah, you made it, son, daughter. 
Yeah, you have a great job. You're doing well for yourself. That's the, that's the thing that if you don't have, you'd be crushed. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your peers. Maybe it's the people you just want to be included or accepted by. You see, in all these cases, money is just the thing on the surface. And what we really worship is far deeper. You see, and the most dangerous thing we can do is attempt to play whack-a-mole with the idols on the surface. It is a game that will never end. You see, what we need to do is to pull up the weed at its root. You can't just keep cutting over it on the surface. It will always, always, always grow back. You see, that's why Martin Luther, he said, if we keep the first commandment, we'll keep the rest. You see, it's the worship of these things. It's the worship of power or approval. It's the worship of comfort. It's the worship of, of control. It's these controlling heart-level desires, the things that have the controlling, overwhelming influence in our heart that, that cause us to break all of the other commandments because what's happening is we are worshiping something other than God. See, and if we want to be a people that worships God supremely and exclusively, we've got to learn how to identify the things that we are tempted to worship instead of him. We must learn to identify the things at the root. We must learn to identify the things that are at the bottom, the things that are the cause of the problems. We've got to learn to diagnose what's going on in our hearts. And, and just like doctors, when they are attempting to diagnose a disease, they start with the symptoms. So too it is with idols in our hearts. You see, symptoms aren't the real problem, but they are the reflection of the disease that is causing them. Proverbs 27, 19 says this. It tells us the same thing is true for our spiritual lives. It says, as water reflects the face, so too one's life reflects the heart. See, what Proverbs is saying is, is that our actions and our attitudes and our behaviors, they are not the real problem. They're the symptoms of a heart that is sick with the disease of sin. Heart that is consumed with something other than the king and his worship. They reveal what we really desire and what our hearts worship. If you've been around, you've, you've seen us, we, kinda, we talk about that source idol stuff. We use a little chart for it. I think I forgot to put the chart on the slides this morning, but I'll put it up online for you guys if you want to find it later. You see, but at, at the right side of the chart, there's questions. The questions help us to diagnose what's going on in their heart. Questions like, what is your greatest nightmare? What is your problem emotion? How do the people around you feel? Those questions, they're all diagnostic questions. They're questions about the symptoms. They help us to see what we are worshiping. They help us to see what is going on underneath. It's the doctor saying, where does it hurt? What happens if I do X, Y, or Z? See, in the answers to those questions, they help to diagnose the real problem. They reveal the source idols, the, the heart-level desires that are, at, that, that are at the root of the problem. I've often shared with you all, I have nothing to hide from you. Uh, for me, the, the source idols that I wrestle with most are the ones of, of power and of comfort. What I believe is that if I could just get my way, if, if you guys would just do what I want you to do, right? If you could just get in line, right? If you could just come along, if we could just, just execute the plan that I have in, delivered, right? Then everything would be great, right? And what happens is when people don't do that, right? When you're real people, right? When you actually live your own lives, right? It's messy. And what happens is sometimes I can get frustrated by that. Or I can feel even offended when people don't take my advice or, or don't do what I encourage or suggest. You see, and what that reveals is that what I worship is not God sometimes. 
What it reveals is that the controlling influence in my heart is often power. What I just want is influence. Even if I have good motives about it, what I want more than anything is influence. See, for me, I often find in my home the things I get angry about, the things that my kids do that just drive me insane. They're the things that keep me from comfort. They're the things that keep me from having the freedom that I want to have, taking the nap I want to take, doing the shop projects that I want to do, right? And sometimes I find in my heart when my kids get in the way of that, I get angry with them. And my anger is not the problem. What it reveals is that I love something more than God. What it reveals is that the thing that's being kept from me, the thing that I long for most is just to be free of responsibility sometimes. You see, and what that is, is it's fundamentally at odds with a worship of God. You see, when a, a worship of God is the thing that is the center, what it frees me and enables me to do is to love my family and to love my kids, to pursue their good, to train them up out of, out of a love for them and out of a longing for their good, not out of a longing for my own good or my own freedom, not trying to train them up so that they'll get out of my way so that I might train them up so that they might love Jesus more than anything. You see, and the reality is, is that my heart is all too often found worshiping something else. You see, what is it for you? What is the thing that your heart is tempted to to be pursued by? What's the thing that is tempted to capture your affections? What is the thing that's at the root that that tempts you to have it be the controlling, overwhelming influence of your life? Is it power? Is it comfort? Is it approval? Is it Is it control? You see, all of us, there is, I have yet to find a situation in our lives in which a worship of one or more of those things is not at the center of the problem. You see, the most dangerous thing we can do, like I said, is to try to play whack-a-mole with the stuff on the surface. You see, money's not the problem. It never is. You see, stuff is not the problem. It never is. You see, what's always underneath the stuff going on in our heart, what's always underneath our breaking of all the other commandments is a worship of something other than God. So what is it? I encourage you, talk with God about that. Ask him. That can be painful. It can be hard. It can, it can be like, it, fe- it can feel difficult. But I promise you, there is a life on the other side of that surgery. There is joy. There is blessing. There is freedom on the other side of God's sanctifying work in revealing the stuff you worship that's not worth worshiping. Just one more comment before we move on as we talk about source idols. It's really important that you see, when we look at things like source idols, you can't see it like your Myers-Briggs personality test, right? Some people, they look at the personality test, right, or the Enneagram or whatever it is, the new fancy thing that everybody loves, right? And you use it to identify what you are. Oh, I'm a one, I'm a seven, or, right, I'm a, I'm a P, or I'm an S, or whatever it is on those charts, right? And sometimes it can be easiest to just identify what you are and then move on and just be like, oh, cool, that's what I am. Great, it helps me understand my life, right? You see, but that is fundamentally missing the point of how we are to deal with source idols, right? If God, by his spirit, is gracious enough to give you eyes to see that the thing you worship is power, if he, by his spirit, is gracious enough to give you eyes to see the thing that controls your life is approval, that is control, that is comfort. See, for you to just know that about yourself and never do anything with it, it's like going to the doctor and telling you, he tells you you have skin cancer. 
and you just walk away. You see, you know the problem. You cannot let it go. It's not just something that is true about you. You see, it's something that's sick in your heart that you need the gospel to transform in you. You see, that leads us to the last question that we need to answer. How do we change? How do we obey the command to worship God? How, how do we live lives that are actually different? You see, it's at this point that we come to the end of the helpfulness of the Ten Commandments. Right? You see, the Ten Commandments, they show you what the law, the, the law has done its job. They, they reveal the God who gives them. They, they, they instruct us on what to do. They, they confront us with where we are at odds with it. You see, but the Ten Commandments, they are powerless to give you a desire to change. They are powerless to actually give you what you need to live differently. You see, the command to worship God supremely and exclusively is a law under which we are all found holy and repeatedly guilty. You see, but there was one who was not. So there's one who, has, who worshiped God supremely and exclusively. There was one who loved God with all his heart with all his soul, with all his mind. There was one for whom the overwhelming, controlling influence of his heart and his life was always the one true God. Not power, not comfort, not approval, not control. The glory of the Father, and his name was Jesus. Trevin Wax writes, it's because of Jesus that we are now free to worship God as we should. Don't think that your hope lies in your keeping this command. You will never be able to keep it completely. Our only hope lies outside of yourself in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You see, the good news of the gospel is that his perfect life, his perfect worship, his perfect obedience gets credited to your account. When by faith you put your trust in him. You see, when by faith the gospel becomes the thing in which you look to to be your savior, the thing to which you look to rescue you, the, the thing to the which you look to make you right with God. And you see, and when the magnitude of Jesus' life and of his death sacrificially given to you and, and his life credited to your account, when the magnitude of that clicks in your heart, it will do something for you that the Ten Commandments could never, ever do. You see, the gospel, what it does is it, it not only enables and motivates, but it empowers us to obey God's commands in a way we could never, have done before. You see, it enables us by freeing us from the slavery of sin. You see, we're no longer slaves to anything other than God. We're no longer slaves to the idols and the source idols of our lives. You see, we don't need approval. We already have His. He proved it to us at the cross. You see, we don't need power. You see, we can rely on His, and what He proved is that His is always the best. It always brings about our good. We don't need comfort. We have the true rest and the ultimate comforter in Christ who was willing to give up the comfort of his throne in heaven so that he might pursue us in life. We don't need control. You see, because we can trust him to be in control and to always bring about our good. You see, God proved that in the, in by dying for us and by rising from the grave. You see, the Ten Commandments, they cannot save you. They cannot change you, but the gospel can. The gospel does it first by enabling you, by freeing you from slavery to sin. 
I see, but more than that, the gospel not just enables you, the gospel enables you to worship supremely, it motivates you because when you see all that Jesus has done for you, when you see how much you did not deserve it, how much you cannot earn it, and how much you would mess it up if it was on you to do, all what happens is you long to give yourself back to the God who has saved you. You long to give yourself back to the one who has loved you and pursued you and given himself for you. You see, the way, the, gospel, the way that the gospel changes our hearts is that it motivates us and it enables us and then it empowers us. And the way that the gospel empowers us to live a new life is by showing us a superior love, a superior affection. The great 19th century preacher Thomas Chalmers, he says it this way, neither you nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection be the love of God, well, it shall draw the heart of the sinner towards him. You see, what he's saying is that when it comes to idols, when it comes to worship, you see, the best defense is a good offense. You see, we can't just stop worshiping something You see, the one thing we can never stop doing is worshiping. There will always be something or someone that has the overwhelming controlling influence on our life. And you can play whack-a-mole with all the stuff endlessly, or instead you can substitute the thing that that is the, the new overwhelming passion. You see, what we need is a superior love. What we need is a superior desire. What we need is someone or something to capture the affections of our heart in a way that is far greater than any of the stuff of this world, far greater than our need for power or comfort or control or approval. What we need is a new overwhelming desire, one that really actually satisfies. See, Proverbs 13, 12, it says this, Hope deferred, it makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. You see, what Proverbs is talking about here is what, talking about what happens when we worship idols. You see, when what we worship, when what we put our hope in, and when it inevitably fails us, when it inevitably does not give the satisfaction and the fulfillment and the, and the joy that you are looking for, it makes your heart sick. You see, you've all felt this before. When, you've, when I've spent the day worshiping comfort, I never feel better at the end of the day. When you've spent weeks and months worshiping the approval of others, even if you get it, it never actually satisfies, does it? When you have the influence that you have longed for, when you get the power that you want to have, it never actually goes the way you want to, does it? It never actually fulfills, it never actually satisfies, and even if it does for a moment, it always leaves you longing for more. You see, Proverbs is saying that there's one thing that gives life. And it's the tree of life. The God who made it. You see, that nagging in your mind that what you've done has not given life, you see, it is replaced. You see, the idols never satisfy. They may for a short time, but they always leave us wanting. You see, there's only one kind of longing that is actually fulfills. There's only one kind of longing that satisfies. There's only one kind of longing that gives us the unfailing love that we are looking for, that gives us the, the thing that our hearts really desire, and it's a longing for the king himself. It's a love for God. A desire for anything else will never satisfy, but a desire for Jesus will always lead to life. And so the question is, how do we get that expulsive power of a new affection? 
You can't just change your favorite color. You can't just change the thing that you love. You can't change your favorite food. So what do you do? You need God to change your heart. And the way that you do it is by setting your eyes on him. There's an old hymn, one of my favorites. The chorus goes this way. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, that's the way you start worshiping something new. You set your eyes on the one thing that's better than everything else. And you ask God, by his great power, to cause you to love him more than you love anything else. You cannot do it on your own. You need him to do it for you. And the way that you join him in that work is by setting your eyes on him, looking full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth, so that your love for power, control, and approval, and comfort, they might grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. You see, that's why we choose to take communion every week here at River City, to remember all that Jesus has done for us, to look full in his wonderful face, to remember that his body and his blood was broken and shed for us. We do that not to get something from God, but we do that so that in remembering our hearts might be consumed by the expulsive power of a new affection for him. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus, to remember all that he has done for you on your behalf so that you might be free in him, so that we might be filled with a love and a gratitude for him that overflows in lives that long to obey him. You see, the bread and the juice, they're in the back. There's a table on the left and on the right. And during our time of worship here at the end, you simply go back as you feel led and you dip the bread in the juice and that's how you take communion here at River City. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if he has given you a new heart that longs to worship him as the one and only, know that that's not something you did. No, it's not something you longed for. It's not something you convinced yourself of. No, it is something that the great God of the universe has worked in your heart for your good. And so during our time of communion, go back, take communion, remember his body broken for you. Remember his blood shed for you. Remember that he did that in love for you. Let that fuel your love for him. Let it fuel your longing to give your life back to him. Let it fuel your obedience to him. Let it fuel your love for, for his people and for the world around you. But this morning, if you are here, and what you realize is that the overwhelming, controlling influence of your life is not God and has not ever been, then I want to encourage you to hold off on taking communion. I need you to know this. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. You are, there's not something... There's not something different about you or fundamentally wrong with you. You are welcome here. You see, this is the place where we are all seeking to follow Jesus and put ourselves under his controlling influence. But if that's not true of where your heart is at yet, then I want to encourage you to hold off on taking communion. 
Instead, talk with God during our time of worship. Be honest with him. Talk to him about the things that you love more than him. Be honest if you even want to love him most at all. And if you do, ask him to cause you to long for him more than you long for other stuff. Ask him to to cause you to be captivated by him. As we take communion, as we sing, I want to encourage all of us. Ask God to show you the things that you are tempted to worship instead of him or alongside of him. Ask him to give your heart eyes so that you might see the things that have the overwhelming controlling influence in your life. And ask him to give you eyes to see the source of it, not just the surface. Ask him to help you to see what's at the root, not just what's at the top. And ask him to give you a soft heart to receive his correction. You see, when God's word confronts us, see, the default mode of our heart is not just to lay down and accept it. The default mode of our heart is to put up our defenses, to make excuses, right? To try to minimize or blame shift. You see, and if we're ever going to have hope of God's gracious confronting in our heart, bringing about life and good, then we need to ask him first to make us have soft hearts that can respond to him. So begin there this morning. Ask him to give you a soft heart that can respond to his word See, it can, be, it can be hard. It can feel painful to have those things that we love. Be, it, God, be graciously trying to pull them out of our lives, but they are for your good. Ask God that he might consume your heart with a love for him as he shows you the beauty of the gospel and all that he has done for you so that you might rid your heart of old desires and old idols with the expulsive power of a new affection. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning. We are wholly dependent on you. God, and we come to you having been confronted by your word. God, none of us stands here before you this morning clean. None of us stands here before you having not, having obeyed this commandment perfectly. But Jesus has. And so we long to put ourselves in him, in, in him, to be clothed in his righteousness. And we thank you, God, that if we have believed the gospel by faith, then we are free in him. That you look on us as your beloved, obedient children, just as you look on your son. And so, God, we come before you, God, knowing that that's not the status we deserve. Knowing that it's not the thing that is functionally true of our lives even though it is theologically true of our status with you and so king jesus would you cause us to live new lives in response to all that you have done for us god not trying to get something from you not trying to earn something from you but but in love for you giving ourselves back to you and so jesus we come we cannot do it on your own god capture our affections by the gospel Give us the expulsive power of a new affection for you. Amen.